Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to a very special program with Shelley Archambault and Robin Washington. My name is Asha Guha, and I'm delighted to partner with the Commonwealth Club on a new speaker series, Ideas Inspire. Our goal is to inform, involve, and inspire youth to be empowered citizens of tomorrow. As part of the series, we're delighted to welcome students and educators from all over the Bay Area and beyond. I'd like to take a moment to recognize the students and teachers from the AVID program at Mountain View High School, the Peninsula College Fund Scholars, and the Science Internship Program at UC Santa Cruz. Today, we'll be hearing from Shelley Archambault, an accomplished business leader, a board director, a former tech CEO, and a sought-after advisor. Shelley is also a black woman who has taken many risks throughout her career and blazed new trails in a white, male-dominated industry. She will be in conversation with another distinguished business leader, Robin Washington. Both women's lives are a remarkable journey of grit, perseverance, and leadership. We hope that many of the audience here, including our young viewers, will be inspired by what Shelley and Robin have to say today. If you'd like to ask a question of either of our speakers, please do so by entering it in the chat or comment section of the live stream you're watching. To all the students who are here with us today, please do ask your questions. We would like to know the, about the issues that matter most to you. We ask at this time that you consider donating to the Commonwealth Club's virtual programs and our efforts to engage youth. If you'd like to learn more about the virtual programs at Commonwealth Club, please visit us at commonwealthclub.org slash online. Now, please join me in welcoming Shelley Archambault and Robin Washington. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Robin Washington, and I'm a board member at Honeywell, Alphabet Inc., and Salesforce.com. And most importantly, I'm your moderator for today's exciting session. Just a reminder, as Kuha just said, we will be taking your questions. So please submit them in the chat box. So let's get started. It is my pleasure to introduce my colleague and dear friend, Shelley Archambault, author of Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risk, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. As just mentioned, Shelley is a well-respected global business leader, former tech CEO, and sought-after advisor. She was one of the first female African-American CEOs to work in high tech, serving as an executive at IBM, president of Blockbuster.com, and CEO at MetricsStream. Currently, Shelley sits on the boards of Verizon, Nordstrom, Roper Technologies, Shelly, welcome. Well, thank you, Robin. Well, I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> yes, I'm excited for our conversation. Um, so let me start by just thanking you um, for sharing your story with us via this lovely book. Um, and I've known you for a long time, but I've learned a lot. Um, it's sage advice, and I can honestly say you live your life, as this book says. So there's, <laughs> there's sincerity there. Um, you know, it takes a lot of courage and, and vulnerability to write such a personal book. Can you start just by sharing with us why now and why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, it's actually okay. a good question, Robin. I am very, how would I describe it? I'm very goal-oriented. I always set goals. And frankly, being an author was never one of those goals. But here's what happened. I tried throughout my career to be accessible. You know, I responded, people email, call, text, you know, whatever, and I would respond. But what happened is I got more and more responsibility. I couldn't meet with everyone that wanted to meet with me. And it really bothered me. And I said, you know what, one day, I'm just going to write it down. I'm going to write down kind of the strategies, the approaches, the lessons learned, etc. Because I've had so much help and support throughout my career that I want to help and support others. So I wrote the book, to really be able to help others improve their odds to achieve their aspirations. Because that's how I lived my life, focusing on how can I improve my odds so I can achieve what I want. And I want more people to be able to do that. 
Well, thank you so much. We're so appreciative of you doing this. So I also really love the title of the book, Unapologetically. I love that word, ambitious. And in reading the book, I learned just the beautiful story as to why you called it Unapologetically Ambitious. Can you share a little bit of that with the audience? Yes. So, you know, the title came from a lot of places, but I actually had the book completely written and I had no title. Um, And I had conversations with people. I knew I wanted ambition in it, but it was actually an experience with my daughter. You know, my daughter and I went through some up and down times as many teenage girls and their mothers do. And when she went off to college and even after she graduated from college, she ended up submitting an essay. She was being considered for a big award or recognition at the college. And what she wrote, and I can't read it all to you, but you have to read the book to read it. But what she wrote was basically an affirmation of everything that I was trying to impart on her, you know, as as she grew and developed. And one of the things that she said is basically, I am who I am, and I'm going after what I want to go after unapologetically. And You know, between that and all the apologizing that women are encouraged to do as we grow up, you know, as girl or whatever, I was like, that's it. That's absolutely it. Unapologetically ambitious. Everyone deserves the right to be ambitious and we don't have to apologize for it. Yeah, I love it. Well, clearly she got her lineage from you in that regard. So so let's go back in time and start at the beginning. You know, you share a lot about your background, your upbringing, and particularly about your parents and your mom. There's a lot of great stories there. And I know you moved around a lot as a child, and you talked about feeling like an outsider for a large amount of your childhood, and, and but also learning how to deal in different situations. I'd love for you to talk to us about how instrumental your upbringing was to your success. It really was. It made who I am, which is why I spend time in the book talking about it. I learned early in life that from my mother that life isn't fair. You know, as a kid, something happens. Somebody does something to you, right? They don't treat you right, or you don't get something you expect. And you come home and you say, this happened and it wasn't fair. And instead of saying, oh, that's too bad, you know, maybe next time, you know, my mother would just look at me and say, life isn't fair. What? It's supposed to be fair. It's like, no, nobody, nobody promised life is fair. Life is not fair. Okay. So you get this life isn't fair thing. And then yes, all the moving around, right. And, and adjusting, learning to be frankly resilient, learning Mm -hmm. to fit in to different environments, um, how to make friends, create relationships, right. No matter where you went, all that totally played a factor. And then I grew up during a challenging times. It was the sixties. And for as many people who wanted civil rights, you had just as many people that didn't. And so there were some horrible things like that that went on. And what my parents would say is, listen, you can't control what people say to you. And you can't control what they do to you. But you can control how you respond. And all of those things put together, Robin, you know, really is what shaped me to realize that I can't do what everybody else does. If I do what everybody else does, I just look up and you know what? I'm not going to get what I want because I don't see people doing the things that I want to be able to do. So I have to do things differently. And that's what really caused me to be intentional in life. Great. Love that. Um, So we're going to fast forward to college because there's so much to talk about here. (laughs) You go off to Wharton with a plan, you know, the Shelley planning part. Um, You meet leave your life partner um, on that part of your journey. Um, But even before you make that commitment, I love reading about, just to your point, your intention, your intention of integrating work, marriage, parenting, and just self-care early on into how you thought about your career and its trajectory. So I'd I'd love for you to share some of that story with us, Shelly, because I do think, you know, we as women leaders, we struggle sometimes with, can we really have it all? Um, And I loved how intentional you were early on in your planning, your ambitions, but saying, yes, I'm going to make it work. Yeah. Um, The way I always treated goals that I had is I would ask myself, okay, what is it that I want? And then the next question was, so what has to be true for me to achieve that? And then lastly, how do I make it true? And that how do I make it true really became the framework for the plan. 
So I decided early in life that I wanted to run a company. I wanted to be a CEO. So if I wanted to be a CEO, then what has to be true? Well, I want to be CEO, but I also want to have a family. I want to get married. I would like to have kids. So what has to be true? Well, what has to be true is I find a life partner that's going to be really supportive of all this. Um, I need to find a life partner that also is on the same page with me and wants this for me too. So it can be our goal. What has to be true? I have to, so all of those things, right? Come into, here's what has to be true. Here's what has to be true. And then I put a plan in place to make it true. So when I was dating Scotty and it was clear that, okay, we're serious. He could absolutely be the one. I had my, yes, I had a little list, Robin. Had my list. Here's what I have to have. And it's long-term because I wanted a long-term life partner. I didn't just want to get married. I wanted to get married and have a long-term marriage. So I wanted a life partner. And therefore I spent time thinking about what do I need a life partner? For example, I wanted somebody who could cook because I did not want to be the only cook in the house. Um, I, I mean, I have this list of things, right? But one of the key things I wanted, and I'll tell you through a story, um, I had talked to Scotty about everything else and check mark, check mark, check mark, all looks good. There's one last question. And I know we're serious and I know he's probably getting close to maybe asking me. So I've got to ask him. So we're sitting in his car after a date. And I said, you know, we talked about it. I would like children one day. And he said, yes, we've talked about it. I would like children one day too. And I said, that's great. I said, my mother was a stay-at-home mom and I liked that. I'd be willing to make the trade-offs and the choices that are required to actually have someone stay home with the kids. And he thought about it and said, okay, I, I could see that. And I said, yeah, but I just don't want to be that person staying home to be me. <laughs> and he was like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and, then, and I know we're hearing an echo, but, and then he came back to, after a while, I was quiet. He's thinking. And then he said, you know, I like to work. I've been working since I was 12 but I could do that for you. And I knew he was the one. And he asked me to marry him three weeks later. I love that. Just so intentional about it. And um, knowing, having had the opportunity to know Scotty, he definitely was a very supportive life, life partner. I think as you described, you're a true fan, true fan of show. <laughs> so let's, let's um, move to talk a little bit about ambition. Um, there's so many great stories and nuggets as you manage your career, but I want to go to Japan, the Far East, or I call it the Japan moment as I read about it. <laughs> so, you know, you, you decided to meet your ambition that you had to, re- to leave a work environment and a culture that really meant a lot to you in a lot of different ways. So please share with us just that decision and how it really changed your career trajectory and really allowed you to reach your career goals. So I mentioned that I decided I wanted to be a CEO when I was young. I was actually high school. And when I got to college and started working for IBM, I decided, you know what? I want to be CEO of IBM. It's in the tech industry. It's growing. It's a leader in the industry. It's a great company. Great. I'm going to go be CEO of IBM. And I spent 14 years working toward that goal. And I got to the point where there wasn't anyone higher than me that looked like me, where I was doing well. Um, But there were a number of signs that just said, ooh, is it really going to happen here? I don't think so. And let me tell you, Robin, this was the hardest thing I've ever done. I felt like I grew up in IBM. I felt like if you cut me, I bled IBM blue, right? I mean, all of my friends were IBMers. I moved around so much that my friends, my colleagues, my support, everyone... And I'm going to leave like this, this nest. I'm going to leave IBM. The easiest thing in the world would have been for me to stay and be a very successful senior exec. I know I would have been a senior exec, right? Could have done that for sure. That would have been easy. But I had a goal. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to achieve the goal. And so after a lot of heart-wrenching discussions and Scotty and I and the whole bit, I decided I had to leave to actually achieve my ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. And I did. I did. And it was the right thing. I ended up having, you know, the job and the career that absolutely wanted. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's all about risk taking, you know, it's taking the right risks that you can get the right reward and achieve what you're trying to achieve. Right. So I love that, Shelly, because as uncomfortable as that was for you at the time, sounds like you look back, there are no regrets. You did it. You followed your ambition. You got outside of your comfort zone and you go, here we sit. Exactly. That's awesome. I think that's awesome advice. 
um, for people to know that it's just when, when it's when you know it, it may you may have to struggle with it, but making that decision to move on is is a really important one. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the presence. In your book, you share a lot of what worked for you and allowed you to become a black female CEO in Silicon Valley. Um, and I know you're you you you've mentored me, we've talked, we've gotten to know each other, our walks, hikes, traveling. Um, but you're a sponsor and a mentor to many. And we've got a lot of students in the audience today, and I think a lot of others that would like to achieve the success that you have in life. But in your opinion, you know, you talked about growing up in the 60s and being at IBM and being the only one. You know, here we are today, 2020. From your perspective, what's changed and what's remained the same for underrepresented minorities that really want to achieve the C-suite in corporate America? Mm. So what's changed is at least they can look up and see some people. Mm-hmm. There was like nobody when I was when I was looking up. Now, are there as many as we should have? The answer is absolutely not. But at least there is some. So that's, to me, the good news. Uh, in terms of what's not changed, the odds still aren't in our favor. And life still isn't there. So we have, in order to achieve the aspirations, you can do it. Absolutely, you can do it, but you have to be intentional. You have to be willing to make choices and trade-offs, and you have to do the work. So if you're willing to do all those things, I firmly believe you can have what you want to have, no matter what background, experience, et cetera, is. And that's so much the reason why I wrote the book, because I want more people to be able to actually do it, to achieve, to make the impact, where there's so much talent that goes to waste right now, and we can't afford to waste the talent. We need as much talent as possible in this country, all contributing. Mm -hmm. So it is within your control to reach those if you're intentional about it. Mm -hmm. I I believe that. With intentional, you take help. I mean, there's a whole list of things that I think you can do, and I cover a lot of it in the book. So definitely take a look. But yes, I do firmly believe that. That, That's awesome. Very, very motivating and and a very important lesson to take away. So I want to maybe just turn to some specific parts of the book. Um, In one of your later chapters, you talk about working hard versus working strategically. And I love this metaphor that you use about carrying a backpack, Shelley. Um, And you you also talk about imposter syndrome, which I do think particularly underrepresented minorities, persons of color, we sometimes carry that around. Um, so, So give us a little bit about that wisdom of that backpack, what you did with yours and what you suggest we do with ours. Um, And then tell us a little bit about your advice for improving our odds of success. Because as you said, we can all do it if we're intentional about it. Absolutely. Let me just read that section, Robin, uh, that talks about that. There's an underlying belief in America that no matter who you are, if you just work hard enough, everything will work out for you. That's not true. It's more like if you work strategically, you can improve the odds you'll succeed. I believe each of us is carrying a backpack. In that backpack are all the things you've been handed in life. You don't get to control what's in your backpack. Sometimes its weight is so onerous that no matter how hard you work, you always feel like you're struggling to keep up. Wearing that backpack all the time, you can get used to it. You may begin to believe that you created that weight yourself or that you deserve to be weighted down. That also is true. You deserve the freedom to set your life and walk toward them. Everyone's backpack is different. For some of us, it's weighted down by inequality from the beginning. For others, it's the weight of tragedies that happen along the way. Some of us shoulder family or health problems. Others get caught in economic or political disasters. For minorities and women of my generation, our backpacks have held more weight. Greater household demands, the challenges of fitting into male-dominated workplaces, assumptions about our abilities, desires, and ambitions. In addition, we've lugged the weight of societal expectations about how we should look, dress, and speak, how we should keep our homes and care for our children, even what we should want from life. I can't say that weight has been lifted off the next generation's shoulders, but I hope it's at least a little lighter than what we carried. 
Yes, whatever's in your backpack is yours to carry. But, and I cannot stress this enough, it does not have to limit your goals. You can aim high, then strategize your way towards success. You deserve to live the life you want on your terms. Beautiful. Strap it on and keep moving on, right? Right. Absolutely right. Absolutely. I, I love it. I love it. It's just such a, a simple but really profound just measure of power and, you know, believing in yourself. So I, I just, I, I'm so happy that you shared that. Um, if you take nothing else away, just put your backpack on and keep going. So I, I thought it was so excellent. True. It's so, so true. My so last question. <laughs> No, 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 no. Keep talking. I was, sure. I was just going to say, you know, the piece I was going to touch on is a lot of times because we carry this backpack, it makes us more susceptible to imposter syndrome. You asked about imposter syndrome, Robin. And I was just going to say, you know, imposter syndrome, for those that don't know the term, you know, imposter syndrome is that little voice in your head when you're getting ready to take another job or someone's offering you to participate, or maybe you're going to speak in front. Anytime you're doing something that feels out of your comfort zone, it's that little voice that says, they're going to figure out you don't know as much as they think you know, right? Or one day they're going to uncover and realize you're a fraud. You don't really have it all together or you're not really capable enough. You're not, it's all, it's that voice that basically is tearing you down and wearing at your confidence, right? And many times keeping you from doing things because you believe the voice. Well, this voice is called imposter syndrome and it's not real, okay? How do I know it's not real? Because studies show everybody suffers from imposter syndrome. Women more than men, but people of color, to Robin's point, the most. So if everybody has it, it can't possibly be real. It's just like the TV. Everybody's got a TV. But what's on TV, it's not real. Sounds real, looks real, feels real, not real. This is not real, okay? And so to deal with it, I talk about how to do it in the book. But it's everything from, listen, believe in yourself and what you've done. If you can't believe in yourself, believe the person that's giving you the opportunity. They believe you can do it. So believe them. If that doesn't work, fake it. That's what I've done. Fake it till you make it. Act like you know what you're doing until you do because you always figure it out. And worst case, you can't, none of that works for you. Get a cheerleader. Get it. And I mean a real cheerleader. Ra, ra, go, Robin, go, Susan, go, Jacob, go, Josh, go, Keaton, go, right? I mean, a cheerleader that reminds you who you are, all of your strengths, everything you've done, because when that voice is here, you can't remember any of that. Right. And I think it's so important to share, Shelly, because, I mean, you've done it all, but I'm sure sometimes that insecurity or that it creeps into you as well, right? I, don't, I, I mean, I, I think we don't want people to leave to say it goes away when you become a CEO. No, listen, Robin, walking into my first Verizon board meeting, I mean, at this point, I've been a CEO for over a decade. I've been serving on public boards for eight or nine years. I'm now getting ready to my first board meeting at Verizon. And that little voice comes up and says, what makes you think that you're going to be able to walk toe to toe with the CEO of Walgreens or CEO of Jardin? Why do you think the Secretary of Transportation is going to think about you? Oh, and I'm like, really? Really? Is, am I really? So yes, I still have imposter syndrome. It doesn't go away. You just have to learn how to deal with it. So don't feel that because it hasn't gone away, somehow you failed. Nope, 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 it's there. You're kind of living with it. So it's learning how to deal with it versus get rid of it. That's awesome. Uh, So true and so important for all of us. Um, We've we've got questions coming in and I know we've got some pre-recorded students from question, uh, pre-recorded questions from students that I want to get to. But my last question, question, and this incorporates um, a question from George um, Dobbins as well, is, um, you know, you've led many as a CEO, a board member, an advisor, and I think we all sit here in October of 2020 saying, wow, what a year. This has been a year like none other. I mean, we've had a health crisis, you know, a global pandemic. Um, We've experienced an economic crisis. There's been social unrest to the tune of probably nothing we've seen, like back to in the 60s, right? And, and candidly, there's also been a leadership crisis. So what advice do you have for those who are leading their teams um, in whatever environment that can be? That, you know, it's whether it's a public or private company, the head of the household of the family, or just a group you're leading. Um, how do we cope? 
give us your input and lead and remain, as you coin it, unapologetically ambitious during these tumultuous times. Yeah, the biggest thing that you can do during times of chaos, because in many ways it's just chaos, right? Everything that's happening all at the same time is it's all about maintaining focus on what's truly important and controlling what you can control, right? And then you have to let other things go, but you got to bring the focus. The analogy that I would use is dancers, right? Have you ever seen a ballerina or a dancer, et cetera, and they do the spins, right? They spin and spin and spin and they stop and continue on. They don't get dizzy. Well, we've seen little kids spin and spin and they fall all over drunk, right? You know how that feels. That's what chaos is, by the way. You're in chaos, it's kind of feels like I can't find my I can't find my balance, right? The best way to do it is focus. Dancers find a focal point. Their eyes stay focused. They spin, head whips around, they stay on that focal point. That's how they keep from getting dizzy. It works the same way in life. Whether it's your business that you're running or your family that you're in, drive focus on what's important. Make sure everybody understands what that actually is and stay focused on that. The other stuff that's happening is happening, right? You can't control it. Don't let it sap all of your energy. Put your energy on what you can control and what's important. And so if you're a leader, make sure your team knows what's really important, where they need to focus, right? And support them. So as everything's spinning, they can hold steady. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing and for, you know, walking us through some really key points. I take, I have a lot of takeaways. I'm motivated now. <laughs> um, why don't we turn to um, some of the um, pre-recorded questions from students? Um, we're going to start off with a video question from Dia. Great. Ms. Dia Gupta, and I'm from Saltos High School, and my question is, now that you have so much experience under your belt, if you could go back and do one thing... Uh-oh. Hello, my name is Dia Gupta, and I'm from Saltos High School, and my question is, now that you have so much experience under your belt, if you could go back and do one thing differently in your early career, what would it be and why? Thank you. Mm. I would make sure that people know what I actually do. You know, when we come out of our, you know, school and we start our careers, a lot of us get the advice, you know, work hard, do this, the whole bit. And so we do. Well, the challenge is everybody else is working hard too. So they're not really paying all that much attention to specifically what you are doing. And when people don't know what you actually do, they don't know your skills, capabilities, et cetera. So they don't know to tap you for different opportunities or participate in task force or even to be promoted. So make sure people actually know what you do. That starts with when people say, what do you do? Don't give them the title. Oh, I'm an assistant, you know, assistant manager. Okay. No, say I'm an assistant manager. I'm responsible for our inside sales organization and blah, blah, blah. Tell them what you actually do when they ask you what you do, not just a title. Titles don't mean very much. The definition of what a title is changes from company to company. Heck, within the same company can have multiple definitions. So make sure people know what you actually do. That's great. So let's move on to our second question. And this is from Jared. Things that students should do in college to prepare themselves to run a business either directly out of college or a few years after graduating from college. Thank you. Well, the advice I got from my guidance counselor is actually the right thing. I would tell you, get involved in organizations and aspire, you know, work your way to leadership positions because leading an organization will give you experience on how to motivate, how to prioritize, how to communicate, how to actually plan activities, et cetera, all that you will get in terms of experience. And all of those experiences are totally transferable. So take leadership roles in organizations within your school. Great advice. Um, so we've got another question from Angelina. Hi, I'm Angelina Chavez. I am a second year business major from UC Riverside. And I just had two quick questions regarding the company you were CEO of. Um, so the first question is, how did you expand your company into a global market leader? Um, to add on to that, what steps did you take during your college career or before you became CEO to get to where you ended up? Um, I want to have my own nonprofit, and I would really appreciate to have the knowledge that you can give to us and guide us in the right direction. Um. 
Okay, so how did I build the company into a market leader in 30 words or less? <laughs> what I would tell you is you have to have the right strategy. Make sure you are solving a problem the market has and will pay to solve. Strategy in place to do that. The team that can actually execute off that strategy. And then you have the metrics and the operations in place to make sure all of that's actually being executed. So simply said, that's what I did. Uh, with regards to the second part of the question, um, which was what can you do now you know, to get ready and expand? I really encourage internships. You know, get yourself in a role that's actually within a business or in a company so you can get a taste and a sense for what it's like to work in an organization and the dynamics, et cetera. All those will be learnings that will help you be even more successful when you actually get out there and do it by yourself. A huge challenge there. Okay, so our last pre-recorded question comes from Joanne. And while we listen to Joanne's question, I've got a few questions in chat, but if there are other ones out there, please forward them because we've got a little bit more time um, left. And I think Shelly would love to answer as many questions as, as uh, she can. Hello, Shelly. My name is Joanne Vieira Norman, and I am a first-generation college student at the University of San Francisco, where I'm majoring in sociology and getting ready to graduate this upcoming semester. I have two questions that I would love to gain some of your perspective in. Question one being, from your varying experiences, what resources do you believe companies need in order to properly support women of color and more specifically, Black women? And question two, when did you become aware of how your identities impacted or shaped your career experiences. I look forward to gaining some insight from you and the release of your upcoming book, Unapologetically Ambitious. Okay, uh, so the first one, what can companies do? Companies need to be intentional. You know, talk about needing to be intentional yourself about your career and the steps you take, et cetera. Well, it's the same thing for companies. If companies are intentional about wanting to actually retain and develop people, people of color, women, you know, et cetera, then they need to be intentional about it, which means understand, okay, if we're having trouble, why are we having trouble? It's the same thing you would do with any other aspect of your company or operation. You're having a problem. What do you do? You analyze it. What's the problem? What's happening? What do we need to do? And then you put systems in place, metrics in place to actually track the fact that you are making progress. They need to do the same thing. I actually don't see it any different. If part of your strategy is to ensure, and this is the company, part of your strategy is, is to ensure that all people are actually able to contribute, develop, and grow within your organization, then where it's not happening, treat it like any other operational problem. Solve it, make somebody accountable for it, put metrics around it, and invest in it. Um, with regards to the second part, oh boy, did I forget the second part? Didn't she have a second part? What can companies do? And then something about what does she do? Hang on a minute. Ah. Here. I think it was just, you know, the support systems and maybe even your own support systems. Being oh, I got it. I remember now. Thank you. What, what's, what situations that I face um, were being a woman of color actually impacted? So let me tell one really early. I started out in IBM in sales, and which I mentioned. So in sales, I... My first account was this company that was the Southern Corporation in Dallas, Texas. Well, everybody in IT, and I was selling computers, so I sold IT. There was one woman manager in all of IT. The guys wore suits and cowboy boots. And I was this young little black girl, literally young, right? And everybody called me like, sweetheart, sweet pea, honey, and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my God. I mean, I, I've got to, how are they ever going to take me seriously? You know, I've got to sell, this is not going to work, Right. So I've learned how to be taken seriously. And the way I did it was I learned you can't say things in groups. You don't want to embarrass anybody because if you embarrass somebody, then it makes tension and then you can't create a relationship. So instead, when one-on-one -on -one and people would do that, I'll give you an example to this day, Mac McElroy. So Mac, Mac calls me Sweet Pea, right? He says, Sweet Pea, blah, blah, blah. I don't even know what question he asked me. And I paused. I looked at him, but I paused. So I paused enough for, you could tell he was getting a little quizzical, like, Wait, didn't, didn't you hear me? And I said, Mac, my name is Shelly. And then I answered his question. Now, what I did was I told him, but I told him very professionally, right? I told him very easy way. I didn't make a big deal about it. I never mentioned it again, right? I said it and then went on because I didn't want him to feel uncomfortable, even though that shouldn't be my challenge to manage. It is because life isn't fair. So 
boom, that's what I did. He never called me that again. We had a great business relationship going forward. And it was fine. So, so you have to stand, you have to stand up for yourself, but in a way that is professional and would still allow you to continue to build relationships. That's great, Shelly. I've got several questions here. I'm going to try to come around and, and summarize them here. So one is, um, how do you manage having time for not only work, but also the things you like to do? I integrate. So I'm a big believer in trying to do multiple things at once. And Robin knows this too. If I'm going to go to the ballet, I don't go by myself. I invite like 50 friends, <laughs> literally send an invite out. Hey, go to ballet on this date, right? Who wants to come? And why do I do that? Because that way I get to see the ballet, which I want to see. I get to see my friends. Usually a group will meet early for dinner who can get there. So I get to eat out, which I enjoy doing too. So it's like multiple check mark, check mark, check mark one evening, right? I started a gourmet dinner club because I like to cook and I like to entertain. I like people. I like nice wine. Okay. I got one evening. Check, 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 right? I get to do all of that. So I find I can't do things serially. I'll do walks and talks. I'll do hikes and walks. Robin and I have done that, you know, a few times. So you know, it's all about, I try to figure out how can I do multiple things? How can I accomplish multiple objectives with the same action? Because time is my most precious commodity. That's great. Um, one of the things you talk a lot about, and I've got a couple questions here about really who have been your role models and how does one select a role model? And as someone used the word, I love sponsor. Talk a little bit about those and the roles that they played in your career success, Shelley. Absolutely. But I have to let me start with, with mentor. So, and let me explain the difference, right? Mentors are people who really reactively, for the most part, will give you advice, counsel, help you think through things, et cetera. Um, sponsors are people that will actually proactively talk about you when you're not there in a positive way, open the door, create opportunities, right? Support. So they tend to be more pull. Um, mentors support, sponsors pull, right? Pull up. Uh, and with regards to role models, those are people that you just look to, to take cues from on what does it take? How do you act? What do you write? Those are role models. So that's how I see all of them. And I've had all of those. And the ones that I've had the most of though is mentors. I'm a big believer in just adopting mentors. So mentors, people think of mentors to help them plan their career. I like mentors to help me do the job I've got because I can't get the next role until I nail this role. So I use mentors for both. Sponsors are, I've not found that you can really like call somebody up and say, hey, from now on, you're my sponsor. So get me a job, <laughs> right? That doesn't happen. But what does happen is sometimes mentors can become sponsors. And people, a lot of times you have sponsors that you don't even realize. People who are actually advocating for you and you don't know that it's happening. So sponsors are the most elusive. But have I had sponsors? I definitely have. That's great. Um, a couple more here. Um, how do you handle a situation where you take a risk, but it doesn't work out? Mm. Well, you lick your wounds, you learn from what happened, and you move on. You know, that's the key. You move on. And, you know, let me, let me give you an example of, of that. And here's where a cheerleader comes into, comes into play, and they'll talk about a different risk. I'm going to give you two. So one is sales again, right? Because I was in sales the first part of my career, had this big deal, the whole world knew about it. It was going to make my number, my boss's number, his boss's number, right? It's going to happen. Executives have all been in meeting with my customers, done. Except it's not. Customer calls me in, we changed our mind, not happening. Oh, not only am I going to miss my number, but I got to go tell everybody that they're now all going to miss their numbers, right? This was awful. I felt terrible. And literally for a couple of days, I'm just like dragging because then everybody's asking, oh, Shelly, I heard about the deal. I mean, it's just like, oh, it's just horrible. My husband, who was my number one cheerleader, you know, about two or three days into it, he's like, Shelly. I'm like, yeah, goes, Shelly, get over it. He said, morning time is over. You are the same person you were three days ago before you found out you lost the deal. Go find another deal. Go get it out. He was just like a peppy up kicking ass and get you out, right? And he's right. That's exactly right. That's how you treat it. So the second one was, you know, making a, making a decision that just didn't work out. I went and became president of blockbuster.com. Well, that was a very short stint because I realized ah, the company really doesn't get it. 
but I moved my whole family from Japan to Texas. I mean, this was a talk about a mess. And I'm now in Dallas. I hadn't thought that through all the way. So if this didn't work out, which it didn't, it's not like it's a bunch of tech companies in Dallas. There weren't then. So I've got to get myself to Silicon Valley, but I just jerked my family around. And I mean, so trust me, definitely mistakes. The key is to learn from them and to make sure that you don't make the same ones, right? Again, but don't avoid making mistakes. Do not stop taking risk because you're afraid to make mistakes. You will never hit senior levels without risk-taking. That is one of the things that they look for in senior execs, your ability to take effective risks. And effective risk doesn't mean that it works out every time. Because at the end of the day, a company cannot be successful as compared to other companies or other organizations if they aren't taking risks. That's why companies were formed in the first place, shared risk. I love that. I mean, I, I think what you're saying, Shelly, is it's part of your journey, right? The mistakes as well as what worked out and one informs the other, right? So it really does. It really does. Okay. Um, let's see. I had another question here that I wanted to pick up. Let's see. A lot of them. Let's, let's go back here. Um, the optimal. We covered that one. Oh, this is one. Um, and I don't think this is only young people, so I'm going to advance this. It's what advice do you have for persons that maybe don't have totally clear goals yet? My biggest advice is that's okay. If you don't know what you want to do, then in certain respects, it doesn't matter, right? So if it doesn't matter, then take roles, learn skills that are in demand, right? If you don't know what you want to do, then go ahead and spend your time actually building skills or taking jobs that are in demand. Because now you will at least build some skills that are marketable, that are valuable. And if it turns out that you don't like it, well, now you can still leverage it to typically move to a different industry, different company, right? Different location, et cetera, and build on it. Much better to build marketable skills, even if you choose that that's not the career path you want to go, because you can build up on them. You're still moving up. If you build skills that are not as marketable, well, if you didn't know what you wanted to begin with and then you build skills that aren't as marketable, it doesn't give you as many options. Think about it like college. You took a lot of classes that you just had to take because foundationally they were required. Well, until you figure out what you want to do, just assume that skills that are in demand, right? Roles and jobs, career that are in demand are required <laughs> and go from there. Eventually you'll figure it out. Studies also show that we tend to like the things that we get good at. So who knows? You might try it. You might get good at it. You might start enjoying it. And next thing you know, you've got a career path in an area that is growing, which will put you on the current and you will actually move faster. That's great. So I love this question. And, you know, if I go back to the IBM days, one says, how has the tech industry changed? And how has that influenced the way you see your work and just the knowledge workers in general, Shelly? Mm. You know, the biggest change in tech is just the speed of change. And honestly, um, tech hasn't changed that much. Now you say, how can you say that? I mean, it used to be a little thing that fits in our iPhone used to take up an entire house, right? So I don't mean that it hasn't changed, but I'm talking about the industry. Um, what's happened is tech, is tech has moved from something that was off to the side and just enabled things to happen. And now tech is squarely in the center. You know, it's hard to do and operate almost any business without technical underpinnings. So therefore it is now the center. And the speed of change just gets faster. So staying on top of it, right? You have to make sure that you are willing to adapt, willing to change, willing to learn, right? If you keep changing, learning and adapting, you will do very well in this industry. If you aren't willing to do that, it's gonna be tough. It's going to be really tough to stay on top of what's happening because the speed of change is just so great. Oh, that's great. I've got a follow-on question, some way staying in that same vein. It is, you know, due to technology or just to your point, the speed of change, um, sometimes workers are downsized, they're automated out of their positions, they're laid off. You know, how do you stay motivated? What do you need to do to kind of stay ahead of that curve? Mm. The key is to realize that you are responsible for your career, right? So what happens to a company, you know, a company doesn't make it and you end up getting laid off or downsized. That wasn't your failure. Not people take it as their failure. Oh my God. You know, but if you get laid off, 
and things. It's because the company actually had a failure. They hired too many people, they wrote a strategy, right? Something happened, but you own your career. And so if you treat it like, okay, I own my career, this one didn't work out, what did I learn from it? And let me go find and do that next thing. So how do you stay motivated? You stay in control of your career and just realize that, okay, life isn't there. Things aren't gonna be given to you. You have to figure out how you can improve your odds. So what do you go do next to improve your odds of having the next one be more successful? That's great. Um, two more questions here. Um, give us an example of a bad boss, but more importantly, what did you learn from them? <laughs> yeah, had a lot. <laughs> here, here's the deal. You're going to end up with having plenty of experience. Um, so what are bad bosses? You know, bad bosses are those that micromanage. They tell you how to do everything. So you don't really get much of a chance to learn. Um, others are those that don't tell you anything. <laughs> and therefore, you feel like you're always moving in, in the dark. There's not enough clarity. You have to rework things a lot because that's not what they meant. That's not what attended. I mean, so you have that going on. Then you have bosses who want to take credit for everything you do and not actually share or expose. I can go on and on. There's all kinds of bad bosses out there. But let me tell you, it's important to actually learn how to work for a bad boss because it's going to happen. And if you keep running from them, you're going to find that you actually can't move up because you haven't mastered how to actually work around it and be successful despite it. So don't just run from a bad boss. That's learn right. first. And then if you ultimately have to you know, move, then move. But I'm just telling you, learn how to deal with it. Yeah, very important. Roll with it again, right? That's right. Um, another question, other side of that is what do you think makes a great leader? The best leaders are those that people want to follow, that people feel, you know, either inspired, they trust, they feel that the leader cares about them, and therefore they are willing, right, to follow. And when I say to follow, I mean to follow during good times, during bad times, during hard times, you know, all those things because of the environment that the leader has been able to, to maintain, I think the best leaders are those that actually show that they care. People want to know that somebody cares about them. And that's true for employees, just as it is for our families. So leaders care. Leaders are ones that you can trust. Leaders are those that you feel are heading in the right direction or able to effectively communicate, right? In terms of what's happening, what's going on. Uh, all of those things make for, make for leaders. That's great. I've got one more question. Uh, Shelly, and then I'd just like you to leave us with your final thoughts, um, particularly as it comes to being unapologetically ambitious. So last question is, if you've never done it before, how do you get out there and start networking? Uh-huh. You have a network. You know, most people think, oh, I got to start a network. You have one. Who's in your network? It's friends. It's relatives. It's people at church. It's your neighbors. It's you actually have a network. So if you haven't done it before and you're trying to figure out how to build it, start easy. Ask people you know, hey, I'm trying to meet some people in, who knows, in the AI industry. Do you know anyone? You can really start by asking people, do you want to, because other people have networks too. So the easiest way to start to build yours is to tap through others. Then once you've done that, then it's to actually show up. It's to go and participate in industry events you know, or in conferences. Now, tons of people, everybody's walking around. How do you actually approach people when we can actually go to conferences and touch people and ask people, right? Um, but when that happens, figure out, you know, come up and practice if you need to. What is your opening line? Just create an opening line. And all you have to do is catch somebody's eye. Approach somebody who's not in a group. Somebody else is also a single kind of staying around. You just catch their eye. And it can be as simple as, what have you thought of the conference? That's a really simple question. It can be, where are you from, right? It can be, it doesn't matter. The key is just to ask that first question, because once you get a response, you can now create a dialogue. But that's, it's, there really isn't magic. And then how do you actually create a network? You create a network not by how many names you have in your database. It's by how many people that you've developed relationships with. And I found the best way to develop relationships is to give. I give. I try to help. I try to support. I try to share. And I found that's the best way to actually create relationships with other people. 
No, I agree. I mean, you're a testament that that is you're, you're always giving of your time, uh, your wisdom and everything. So that's great. Final thoughts, Shelly. This has been wonderful. And I hope all of you out there listening gleaned at least one or two key points and takeaways from this wonderful dialogue. Yes. Well, thank you. You know, my final points are unapologetically ambitious. You deserve to have the life you want. So decide what that is and then be intentional about it. Put a plan in place. Go after it. Make it happen. Take help. You can't do this by yourself. Nobody does it by themselves. I don't care what they tell you. There's not a person out there that's achieved something of significance that has done it by themselves. Full stop. And know when it's hard, you're pushing through and you come up and it's just hard. And you're thinking, gosh, it's easy for everybody else. Why is it so hard for me? No, it's hard. You'll read in here. It's hard. It's hard for everybody. So don't let that stop you either. Just go get more help to push that boulder or push that obstacle out of the way. You can have the life you want. Just be intentional and go after it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Shelly, for your time um, and just the wisdom that you've departed on all of us. Ladies and gentlemen, Shelly Archambault, author, author of Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risk, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. Um, I'd encourage all of you to pick up a copy of this wonderful book at your local bookstore. They can get it. It's everywhere now, right? It's out there, right, Shelly? It is. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, definitely get it. It's, it's an awesome read. Um, so we also like to thank Asha Gulha for her generous support of today's Ideas Inspire series and all of the students for submitting your questions. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. Thank you all so much for joining us today. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.